Last time I spoke, we talked a bit about sins of the heart and the mind, and, and I kept saying we need to mortify those thoughts. And I lost count of the number of people who said to me, what do you mean by that? And how do we mortify sin in our lives? Scripture commands us to put together the sin that resides in our members. How do you do that? And why is it so hard? Maybe you've wondered why sin poses such a difficult problem for believers. After all, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7 says, our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who's died has been set free from sin. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And 1 John 5, 18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, all of those verses teach us emphatically that sin is a defeated enemy for true Christians. Sin has no more rightful dominion over us. We're no longer enslaved to it, hopelessly bound to it. The principle of sin is not the driving principle of our lives anymore, and we're not under the dominion of the devil. The bondage of evil has been broken. Scripture uses very positive and triumphant language to describe Christ's victory over sin and the Christian's participation in that victory. It's a running theme through the New Testament. And yet, it is the universal experience of every individual believer that we do still struggle with sin. We still are frustrated by it. We still feel its power in our lives, and we're still engaged in a perpetual warfare against it. And it is a difficult battle to wage, and it often feels as if we're losing the fight. So how can we claim, on the one hand, to be free from sin's dominion if we still get beat up by sin so often? That's the question. That's a fair question, isn't it? After all, if sin really has no more dominion over us, why do we feel its force so powerfully? Why is it so hard to overcome temptation, and why do we fail so often? And what about the sinful habits that we struggle with that are so hard to break? Most Christians, if they are honest, will admit that we have sinful habits, persistent sins that we find it extremely difficult to break free of. Some of you struggle with secret and horrible addictions. These may be sinful actions, lustful thoughts, proud imaginations, various addictions and obsessions, simply covetousness perhaps, laziness, a lack of self-control or whatever. We all struggle with bad habits, and if you have an ounce of genuine spiritual maturity in you, you're going to have to admit that you are frustrated with your own sinful habits, like Lot, whose righteous soul was vexed with the filthy conduct of the, uh, the wicked people in Sodom, and yet somehow he lacked the will to move away from that ungodly place. But it's not just 
weak and worldly Christians like Lot who struggle with sin. Even the Apostle Paul admitted that he was frustrated in his own struggle with sin. Romans 7, verses 14 and 15, he wrote, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. And in verses 18 and 19, he added this, "'Know that nothing good dwells in me.'" I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." And then in verse 23, he describes sin this way, "'I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members.'" In other words, Paul said that the principle of sin still operates in him. It operates in every Christian, even though it no longer rules. It's still operative. It's not the ruler, but it wants to be. It wars against the righteous thoughts and desires we have, and it is seeking to bring us once again into captivity to that which is evil. And as we just sung, God promises He will not permit that to happen for genuine believers. So if you are frustrated by the battle against sin in your life, you're not alone. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do." That's the normal Christian experience, and it is frustrating. It's discouraging, but it is a battle all of us wage. That was the Apostle Paul's own spiritual experience, so it shouldn't surprise you if you struggle with sin as well. But I find a lot of people are confused about whether a person can have an evil habit and still be a genuine believer. You will often hear people claim that while Christians might occasionally fall into sin, no true Christian could ever have a sinful habit. You've, you've heard people say things like that too. Sometimes we're careless in the way we speak of these things. You know, a Christian can sin by accident but not by habit, or uh, authentic Christians don't sin habitually. You're probably not a genuine Christian if there's a pattern of sin in your life and all those things. And uh, some people take that to, to mean that if, if you struggle with any bad habits at all, you cannot possibly be a genuine believer. And lots of Christians have their assurance shaken over that very issue because the struggle with sin seems perpetual, and it will be as long as we're here on this, in this fallen world. And because we all tend to keep falling into the same sins or similar sins again and again and again, it's, it's tempting to begin to doubt your very salvation. People think that if they were truly saved, it should be easy to overcome evil habits. After all, if I'm really freed from the bondage of sin, I shouldn't have a hard time with this or that evil habit. Should I? Something must be seriously wrong with me, they think. Maybe I'm not saved. And that fear then becomes fuel for more sin. Now, I don't believe Scripture teaches that Christians never have sinful habits, but at the same time, I don't believe any Christian should ever give in to an evil habit or, or tolerate a pattern of sin in his life. Evil habits 
are out of place in a Christian's life, even though they are the common experience of all of us, all sin is inconsistent with the Christian's true nature. And the habits of sin that we entertain are especially dangerous and especially debilitating spiritually. We need to get rid of those habits. And so when I say virtually all Christians have sinful habits, don't imagine that I mean it's okay to tolerate those things. It's not a problem. I don't mean that at all. They are out of place in your life. And if you give in to them and embrace them and just decide, oh, I'm going to put up with that because everybody has sinful habits, if that's how you think your assurance ought to be shaken, if you're an authentic Christian, you ought to continue struggling against sin and doing everything you can to purge it from your life, and particularly those habits that keep dragging you back into sin. So if you struggle with an evil habit, there's no reason for your assurance to be shaken. But if you have given up struggling against that sin, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Now remember, Scripture does teach that sin cannot be the governing principle of a Christian's life. That's what 1 John 3, 9 means when it says, no one who's born of God can practice sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on making a practice of sin because he's been born of God. It, that means we don't purposely cooperate with sin in a way that allows sin to become the driving principle of our lives. Sin is not the ruling power in our hearts. It's not the dominant feature of our desires and our behavior. Sin does not define who we really are at the core of our character. But for the believer, sin is an interloper, an unwelcome intruder. In Romans 7.20, the Apostle Paul says, now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Understand what he means there. He is not shirking responsibility for his own sin. He's not saying that he's not guilty when he sins, as if the, you know, it's not me that does it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not saying that the abstract principle of sin is to blame, but he's not. He's not saying that at all. When he says, it is no longer I who do it, he's simply saying, that's not the real me. Sin doesn't define who I am. Sin is a trespasser, an alien. It's not a reflection of my true character. And yet, he says, in that same context, sin dwells in me. There's still some corruption in my being that is susceptible to temptation. It's the flesh, the remnant of our old sinful self that hasn't yet been removed and won't be fully removed until we're glorified. Paul refers to that as the flesh, but don't think of it as something that's synonymous with your physical body. It's the, the set of lusts and evil desires of which the physical body is the seat and the instrument, but it's more than the physical body, the flesh. It includes those desires and those weaknesses, the immaterial tendencies that stem from our human fallenness. The flesh is, in Paul's parlance, it's the leftover corruption that remains in us after we are justified and before we are glorified. And getting rid of that leftover corruption is what the whole process of sanctification is all about. It's comparable, I've made this comparison before, it's comparable to Lazarus's grave clothes. You remember that when Lazarus 
rose from the dead and came to the opening of the tomb, according to John eleven forty four, his hands and feet were bound with linen strips. So he's made up like a mummy, and his face is wrapped with a cloth. He's bound hand and foot with grave clothes, face is bound with a, a napkin. He's alive, but he still wears the mummy suit of a dead person. And that's how it is with us spiritually. There are corrupt remnants of our spiritual death that still cling to us, and we need to put them off. But those remnants of our sin, that's why sin still assaults us. It still tempts us. It still wars against our souls. And as we're going to see, a huge aspect of gaining victory over sin, and it involves the process of systematically putting off those grave clothes and putting on the clothing of a living person. That's how Scripture actually portrays it. And that's why we struggle with sinful habits, our old patterns, our corrupt cravings, those habits that we developed when we were in bondage to sin. They don't necessarily leave us forever the instant we are born again. Evil still tempts us. We still find pleasure in some sins. Some remnants of our sinful corruption remain in us, and they will be with us until we are finally glorified. And in the meantime, sin takes advantage of that fact to try to entice us. And so even though we're freed from the absolute bondage of sin, even though we're given a new heart with new desires, even though sin has no rightful dominion over us, we still have these remnants of sinfulness that remain attached to us, and that leaves us susceptible to the enticements and deceitfulness of sin. And that's why the Apostle John, in the, in the very same epistle where he wrote 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born again. In that same epistle, John also said, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those are twin truths. At first glance, those may seem like opposite truths, but they are perfectly compatible with one another. And those two truths run through the New Testament. On the, on the one hand, as Christians, we are victorious over sin and the devil, and yet, as earthly people, we are not yet glorified. We, we're still locked in a life-and-death struggle against sin, and that at times can frustrate and almost seem to overwhelm us. Sin is still very much alive, even though it's been defeated, even though it's been dealt a death blow, sin hasn't given up the fight, and nothing in the Bible ever suggests that we as Christians should find the warfare against sin in our lives to be an easy thing. It's not easy. I don't know what other illustration to use, but I'll use this one. Sin is like a terrorist. It's lost the war already. It's a defeated foe. It's been stripped of its right to rule, but it's not dead yet, and it hasn't given up the fight. So it attacks us like a terrorist secretly, subtly, by ambushing us when we don't really even expect it. It wants to pretend that the outcome of the war isn't already decided, even though evil has already suffered a decisive, irreversible defeat. So it fights like a gorilla, like from a position of stealth and harassment, and it can do significant damage. But if you're a genuine believer, 
Sin can never gain ultimate mastery over you. Meanwhile, it's our job as Christians to wage battle against sin ruthlessly. We can't pacify it. We're not merely supposed to placate it or negotiate with it or compromise with it. It's a deadly enemy that must be met with deadly force, killed, choked out of existence, rooted up and utterly purged from our lives. And that's what Scripture means when it says, mortify sin, put it to death, get rid of it. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the passage I want to look at with you this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Colossians 3, I'll focus mostly on verse 5 this morning. But let me read through verse 10 just to give you some important context. Here's the passage, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must Put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator." Now, here's some background. Paul, in the first four verses of this chapter, speaks of the principle of justification. That, by the way, is what Mike Riccardi is speaking on in the main service this morning. You won't want to miss it. But he he talks about it here, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now he's not saying that you're really and literally dead, obviously, but he's saying you are reckoned dead in Christ and therefore you are the beneficiary of Christ's actual death. Likewise, you've been raised with Christ, verse 1, which again, you haven't literally been raised from the dead, but... By divine reckoning, it is as if you rose from the dead in Christ because He died as your substitute, and now as a believer, you are spiritually united with Him. And so what He did, everything He did, He did on your behalf, everything He did as a man. He did in your place and in your stead, and that's what the doctrine of justification is all about. God reckoned your sins to Christ, and He died for them. Now, God reckons Christ's righteousness to you, and you are so identified with Him that it is as if you rose from the dead with Him. And therefore, your spiritual position as a believer is this, it is as it is literally as if you occupy heaven with Christ. You are that closely identified with Him. The the exchange of your sin for His righteousness, your life for His life, was so perfect and so complete that in the reckoning of God, it is as if you are now seated with Him in heaven. And that is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 6, that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so he says in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Cultivate desires for heavenly things, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, think like someone who has literally been raised from the dead. How would you think as a person who came back from the dead? Positionally, God Himself sees you as dead and resurrected. So think like that and act 
act like that and live like that. And here's where he gets into the issue of dealing with sin, verse 5, since God reckons you dead and alive and raised to heaven, you need to reckon yourself dead and, and do everything you can to kill the remnants of your old life. In a spiritual sense, you have already been united with Christ and raised to heaven. That's the real you. You live in a spiritual heavenly realm. Therefore, do everything you can to destroy the old corruption of your life here in the earthly realm. And here's how to deal with sin, especially those stubborn, sinful habits put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You belong to heaven, so it's time to eradicate that which is merely earthly. The King James Version famously uses that word mortify. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Mortify means put to death. This is the language of war. It's a picture of warfare here. It's harsh and violent language. These are not instructions for wimps, but this is the biblical strategy for overcoming every kind of sin in your life, and especially the kind of sin that has taken root and become a habit for you. Mortify it. Choke the life out of it. Destroy it and root it up. Put it to death without mercy. It's vital to understand this imagery of putting sin to death. If you take any other approach to sin, you will fail. Like if you think you can deal with sin in your life by covering it up, you're just cultivating hypocrisy, compounding your sin. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That's Proverbs 28, 13. If you think you can tolerate small sins in your life or, or indulge in one favorite sin with impunity, you are in for serious disappointment. Those sins that you tolerate make way for other worse sins and ultimately spiritual disaster. There's only one way to deal with sin in your life, and that is by going on the offensive against it and showing it no mercy. Put it to death. Throttle it. It's the only way to deal with an evil habit. And I want you to look at this command from three different angles and, and notice what it teaches us about sin. So three points here. First, this is active, militant language, meaning you can't be passive. This is not a passive process. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? He, he names some specifics, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice this, all of those are sins that begin with evil desire in the mind, lust, covetousness, sinful passions. Those are all sins of the mind before they become sins of the flesh. Sexual immorality and impurity might involve sinful acts, but they begin in the mind. And when he says to put these things to death, what he's saying is this, destroy sin at its very root, kill the thought before it becomes a scheme or worse, an act. He's not talking about cutting off actual physical members of your body, and he makes that evident with this list of what he is talking about. The New American Standard Bible says, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Put those things to death. Put them to death in your mind, because those are all sins hatched in the mind. Attack them without mercy. Destroy them wherever you find them in your heart. There's a 
parallel passage in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, where Paul writes this, "'So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live." And those are exact parallels. They're speaking about the same process of sanctification. To put to death the deeds of the body is to mortify those sins in your heart. Because when He gives a list of things that we're supposed to mortify, He names a list of heart sins again, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness. So mortify your earthly members by destroying sin and rooting it up from your life, starting with those sins that take place in your mind, your imagination, your desires, your attitudes, your, your motives, all those sins of the heart, that's where you kill it. And again, notice, this is active, militant language. You cannot be passive in this process. You have to take the offensive. And that's an important point because there are many people who believe and teach that the pathway to sanctification is completely passive. When I was in college, someone introduced me to some literature that held out the promise of instant sanctification, the deeper life, you know, life on a higher plane, perpetual victory over all temptations. And, and I quickly bought into that promise and began to read everything I could about this amazing easy shortcut to victory. And all this literature basically said the same thing. There are books and books on this subject telling you that Christians are, are you know, supposed to be completely passive in the process of their sanctification, let go and, and let God. The idea is that self-discipline and, and effort are inherently fleshly, and therefore, if you wish to have victory over sin, you just have to give up trying to obey God and, and just allow Him to give you the victory over, over sin by faith without any actual effort on your part. And there are a number of, as I said, very popular books that teach this doctrine. During the years that I was enamored with that kind of theology, I read all of them, books like The Christian Secret to a Happy Life by Hannah Whitehall Smith, who, if you read her biography, she had a seriously messed up life. I don't know why her book is still a, a bestseller. There's Watchman Nee's The Normal Christian Life, Roy Hessian's book The, the Calvary Road, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, dozens of similar books like that. One of the favorite slogans of that movement is, let go and let God. And they teach that if sanctification is obtained by faith, then we need to be just totally passive in the process. You just need to get out of the way and wait for God to defeat sin for you. He'll take the desires away. It'll go automatically if you just surrender, yield, let go. They love passive words like that, but they ignore the many commands in the New Testament like this one that calls specifically for an active, aggressive response against sin. And the truth is, if you are the least bit passive in your response to sin, sin will take advantage of you. You can't be passive. You have to seek out sin, strike at its head, pull at its root, and constantly be mortifying the deeds of the body. One of the best books on this subject, you've heard me recommend it before, is John Owen's book called The Mortification of Sin. Sin is still dangerous. John Owen wrote this, "'Mortification may abate the force of sin, but it doesn't change sin's nature. 
Grace changes the nature of man, but nothing can change the nature of sin. Destroyed it may be, it shall be, but cured it cannot be. If it's not overcome and destroyed, it will overcome and destroy the soul. And herein lies no small part of sin's power. It is never quiet, whether it is conquering or conquered. So mortify sin, make it your daily work, be always at it whilst you live, cease not a day from this work, and then he famously says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So the mortification of sin is not a process that can take place while you are passive. You must go on the offensive. If you wait to respond to temptations when they come, it's already too late. So the active militant language Paul uses here is deliberate, and and that is the first thing I want to register in your mind about this verse. It is active, militant language. You cannot be passive. Second, number two, this calls for decisive, lethal action, meaning you cannot be lenient. This commandment always reminds me of the Old Testament account of Saul and King Agag, king of the Amalekites. Saul was commanded to destroy the Amalekite tribe because of their extreme wickedness. He was supposed to wipe them out and destroy everything they had because they were a perpetual snare to the Israelites, and and they were also just a grossly wicked society. And so Saul waged war against them. But he decided to keep Agag, the king, alive, maybe as a trophy. God condemned him for doing that, and Samuel, the prophet, took Agag, and the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, 33, that Samuel took a sword and he hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Sounds awful, right? But this was a righteous act. John MacArthur has a a brilliant message on tape, or, or it's not on tape anymore, it's... Digital recording, but you can download it. Look for the message called Hacking Agag to Pieces. It's one of my favorite John MacArthur sermons. (laughs) And he shows how this pictures the ruthless way we are supposed to deal with sin in our lives. There was a reason God commanded Saul to ruthlessly slay the Amalekites because this was a hostile nation that never stopped coming back. Israel would fight wars with them and defeat them but then they would, they would carry out acts of terrorism and wanton destruction against Israel, and, and meanwhile they would lie in wait until they had recovered their military strength as a nation, and then they would invade Israel again. And in fact, even in David's time, remember, David's a generation after this stunning defeat at the hand of Saul's armies, The Amalekite nation was nearly wiped out, but he didn't do a complete job. And one generation later in David's time, according to 1 Samuel chapter 30, the Amalekites had already recovered enough strength to trouble Israel again, and they attacked again and even carried some of David's own family into captivity. And when David found the Amalekites, 1 Samuel 30 verse 16 says, Behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. It's a perfect picture of sin. You think you've defeated it, but then it comes back, defeats you, and throws a party. And the very next verse says, David slaughtered them from twilight until the next evening. But even then, the Bible says, about 400 of their young men escaped on camels. 
It's how it is with sin. No matter how diligent you are to track it down and stamp it out, it multiplies, it comes back, at first with surprise attacks and aggravating assaults, and then with all its full force, it will attack you in a head-on, all-out onslaught. And there's only one way to deal with it. Keep putting it to death, starve it to death. Strike it with deadly blows, strangle it, choke the life out of it, and do this without mercy and without leniency. You know, people find all kinds of ways to tolerate sin in their lives. We all do this. One of the most common modern techniques is to treat sin as sickness, you know, the pathological approach. Give it a clinical name and that will excuse it. And so that now even children's misbehavior is given names like attention deficit disorder, or worse, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That's what I think I have. <laughs> you can treat almost any evil habit as an addiction and then act as if that somehow diminishes your own moral culpability. So that if you can get a psychologist to tell you that you're a sex addict or that you have a bipolar disorder, and you may be, frankly, mentally unstable somehow, but your immorality and anger are still unacceptable, sinful behavior, and it needs to be put to death. Don't give it a clinical name and then think it's somehow less intolerable. It's how people coddle their sin and tolerate it. They make excuses for one another's sin and forget that all sin is exceedingly sinful. Other people think that by comparing themselves with someone else, they can minimize the seriousness of their sin and, you know, pretend it really doesn't matter so much. Sins have become socially acceptable. In fact, now legally mandated some sins that we're supposed to tolerate and not say they're sinful. And in fact, in, in some countries today, and I think soon to come to our own country, you can actually be charged with a criminal offense simply for saying that homosexuality is a sin. Sins have become socially acceptable. All of these are ways we tolerate sin when we ought to be ruthlessly putting it to death. But this commandment calls for decisive, lethal action. There's no room for leniency when you're dealing with sin. Look at the verse a third time. We've seen that it uses active, militant language, so we can't be passive. It calls for decisive, lethal action, so we can't be lenient. And now third, it requires perpetual, lifelong diligence. You cannot be lazy. Don't get the idea that you can reach a plateau of victory where sin will never trouble you again. That's what I used to think. That's the, that's the life I used to pursue, that, you know, someday this will get easy. And now I'm 65, and you know what? It never got easy. Mortifying our sin is a lifelong task. Our progress will always be only gradual, and there's a principle always at work so that the more you grow in grace and Christ-likeness, the more sensitive you become to the remaining sin in your life, and so the more triumph you experience, the more you feel the pain of each defeat, and it sometimes seems like you're just not moving ahead at all. And it's a strong temptation for some people to grow discouraged and begin to concede too much to the enemy or, or to get lazy and careless and, and thus lose the intensity and the zeal with which we attack sin in our lives. And when that happens, sin will seize the opportunity to gain ground. But Scripture says 
Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. That's Romans 6.14. God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And having begun a good work in you, He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as we sang about earlier. So there's no reason to become discouraged or lazy. But let me give you a few guidelines you need to remember as you seek to obey this commandment. I'm going to borrow and paraphrase these from John MacArthur's book, The Vanishing Conscience, one of my favorite books that John ever wrote, and it doesn't get read enough. And John actually got these ideas, I think, and paraphrased them from John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. recommend both of those books to you highly. But John MacArthur points out, number one, sin is not mortified when it's merely covered up. Sin is not mortified when it's merely covered over. You, you can obscure your sin from other people's sight, but that is not the same as mortifying it. If a sin has simply been papered over with hypocrisy, what good is there in that? At the beginning of my message, I quoted Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You haven't done your duty with regard to your sin until you've confessed it and forsaken it. And that means dealing with it openly rather than trying to cover it up. Now, you don't need to confess every private sin in public. That's not the point. That's not what Proverbs 28.13 means. But it does mean you have to deal with each sin in whatever venue the sin occurred. If you sinned in public, you do need to usually confess publicly. If you sinned against an individual, you at least need to go to that individual and ask forgiveness. If you sin only in your own mind and heart, it's usually sufficient to confess that sin to God alone. But whatever your sin, don't cover it up. Don't live in denial. Don't play the hypocrite. That only adds guilt to whatever the sin was in the first place. So mortifying your sin means dealing with it biblically, confessing it, repenting, and forsaking the sin. You haven't really mortified the sin if you skip any part of that process. Here's another thing to remember. Number two, sin is not mortified when it's only internalized. Sin isn't mortified when it's only internalized. It's, it's possible to give up an outward act of sin and yet continue sinning in your heart. If a person gives up fornication and then indulges in lustful imaginations, he hasn't really mortified the principle of that sin. And that's what Jesus meant when He said that everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as you know, because I stress this all the time, the mind is the place where most sin is hatched. Sins in the mind are not less evil than acts of sin, but every sin begins with a sinful thought. And if you really want to attack the root of your sin, the thought life is the place to do that. In fact, notice our verse again, virtually all the sins He specifically names are sins of the mind. Don't, don't lose sight of that fact, evil desire, covetousness, passion, impurity, sins of desire. And then in verse 8, He mentions some more, anger, malice wrath, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Those are sins of passion, especially anger. You don't mortify sin by stifling an urge to kill while you load your heart with anger and wrath and resentment and malice. All you have done is internalize that sin. 
Sin is still alive, still threatening you. If you're thinking, well, I can't get revenge against that guy, but I'm never going to forgive him. That sin is still alive. It's still threatening you. And it's ready to break out into some sinful action the minute you let your guard down. And one other word about internalizing sin. If you forsake the outward practice of some evil thing, but you continue to ruminate on the memory of when you indulged in that sin, the pleasures of it, you haven't mortified your sin. You've merely moved your sin into the privacy of your imagination where nobody else can see it, but it's still alive and it's still there. That sin has not been mortified. If anything, it's been made more deadly by being married to hypocrisy Now it's going to produce all kinds of evil offspring. Here's another thing to keep in mind. Number three, sin is not mortified when it's merely exchanged for another sin. What good is it to trade the lust of the flesh for the lust of the eyes? That that lust hasn't been mortified. It's only been changed in its form. A Puritan writer, Thomas Fuller, said some people think they have improved their piety when they stop being extravagant or wasteful and adopt a miserly spirit of covetousness instead. Swing to the opposite extreme. It's just as bad. Some people think they can break one evil habit by indulging in another form of evil. They just exchange one form of addiction for another. To compensate for a lack of self-control in their eating, they become bulimics or whatever, and then they sin against their bodies just the same. I read the account of one young actress who became a bulimic in just that way, and it cost her her life. And in fact, in the process of trying to overcome her bulimia, she became a drug addict. In the process of trying to kick that, she lived a life of immorality and in the end committed suicide. Sin isn't mortified when it merely changes form. Don't think you can successfully resist one kind of lust by giving in to another. When you do that, sin is only strengthened. Here's another principle, number four. Sin is not mortified when it's merely repressed. You know, some people use diversions to avoid dealing with their sin. When temptation surfaces, they seek a fleshly escape route. They try to drown their conscience with alcohol or silence their guilt with entertainment or other distractions. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about that, I quote, "'If you merely repress a temptation or this first motion of sin within you, it will probably come up again still more strongly.'" Lloyd-Jones says, "'To that extent, I agree with the modern psychologists. Repression is always bad.'" "'Well, what do you do?' asks someone. Lloyd-Jones says, "'I answer, when you feel that first motion of sin, just pull yourself up and say, of course I'm not having any dealings with this at all. Expose the thing and say, this is evil, this is vileness, this is the thing that drove the first man out of paradise. Pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, then you've really dealt with it. You must not merely push it back in a spirit of fear. Bring it out, expose it, analyze it, and then denounce it for what it is until you hate it. That's pretty sound advice. We should deal with sin courageously, in other words. Strike it at its head. Subduing it a little bit isn't enough. You need to exterminate it, hack it in pieces. Seek by the means of grace and the power of the Spirit to wring the deadly life from it. Here's a final principle, number five. 
Sin is not mortified until the conscience has been appeased. The goal of sanctification is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. That's 1 Timothy 1.5. So as long as the conscience remains defiled, it affects your testimony. 1 Peter 3.15 and 16 says, "...in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience." so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." Part of the process of mortification is working through the issue of our guilt. Those who attempt to evade the guilt issue have not properly confessed their sin, and therefore they can't be cleansed and fully forgiven. If you want to mortify sin, here's what John Owen said about it. He said, load your conscience with the guilt of it. Contrary to the popular wisdom of our day, Owen knew that the pangs of guilt that God lets us suffer from, those are a natural and healthy consequence of wrongdoing. Be ashamed, Owen wrote, for he saw shame as an advantage in the mortification of sin. He correctly understood Paul's meaning in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Those who who sort of give a nod of the head to their guilt and claim the promise of forgiveness easily and then quickly reassure themselves and, and then they think no more of their wrongdoing, they are subjecting themselves to the heart hardening deceit of sin, especially when that sin threatens to become a habit, when you find yourself falling into it over and over again. Let sorrow do its full work in your heart to produce a deep and honest repentance, and those sins will be severely weakened. That's how you overcome an evil habit. The bad news is there is no instant cure, there's no magic bullet. Sometimes the Lord does sovereignly take away our desires for evil habits, but it doesn't always or even usually happen that way. If you've cultivated a habit, you need to go through a process that requires diligence and strength and persistence and, above all, the power of the Holy Spirit to conquer that habit, replace it with a good habit. And remember this, whenever anyone offers you a shortcut to sanctification, or an easy path to instant victory over sin, you're being offered a fraud. took me years to see that, but I finally realized Scripture doesn't promise any such route to sanctification. The only means of instant Christ-likeness is glorification, and that's not going to happen to you until you die or Christ returns. And until then, you will struggle with sin. You must struggle against sin. You'll face temptation. Your experience will at times be like what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 7. And he ends that discussion with this plea, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And his answer to that question consumes all of Romans 8. It's Romans 8 where you find the passage that parallels our text, Colossians 3, 5, Romans 8, 13, where the Apostle Paul says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit 
you mortify the deeds of the body. Let me, in closing, focus on those three words in that text, by the Spirit. Mortification of sin is only possible by the Spirit of God. You don't have any intrinsic power of your own to conquer sin. That's why you were utterly in bondage to it before you came to Christ, and that's why you still struggle with evil habits. The only power that can mortify sin is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means unless you are a Christian, none of this is of any practical use to you whatsoever. If you're not a believer, frankly, you have no means of overcoming your sin. If you're not a Christian, sin will ultimately defeat you and destroy you. You can count on it. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why Christ came, according to Hebrews 2.14, so that through death He might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And Jesus breathed on His disciples and told them, receive the Holy Spirit. He told them in John 14.17, you know the Holy Spirit, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And He, the Holy Spirit, is the agent by whose power our sin can be mortified. If you're not a true Christian, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, all your efforts at self-reform are futile. You're in bondage to your sin, and the truth is you know it. You can't put it to death because it is putting you to death. And in fact, spiritually speaking, if you are without Christ, you're already dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2, verse 1. But Christ calls you to trust Him as Savior, and He promises that He will give the water of life freely to all who ask. That's the first and necessary step you need to take if you're looking for victory over sin. If the Holy Spirit lives in you already, if you are a believer in Christ, then through the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to be putting to death the sin in your life. Show it no mercy. Make no compromise with it. Kill it and uproot it and throw it away, and that is the pathway to victory and blessedness in Christ. That is the only true biblical way of sanctification. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the clarity with which Your Word teaches us these things, and it is only because of the remaining sin in our hearts that we don't see it or we refuse to see it or we decline to obey it. I pray, Lord, that You would give all of us power through Your Spirit to mortify the sin that remains in us, that we as a group and as individuals might glorify Him by being made like Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.